0: Daily live coverage begins Monday, May 20th. Stream it now with Tennis Channel Plus to be there when it happens.
1: Welcome to the Mini Break, your daily podcast for the biggest storylines, results, and controversies from the tennis world. Today is Monday, May 31st. It's a day us tennis fans won't be forgetting anytime soon. Unfortunately, it's for some news that happened off the court rather than on it, but the big decision... From Naomi Osaka to withdraw from the 2021 French Open, citing her mental health, citing the fact that she just doesn't believe she's in a place where she will be able to perform the way she's accustomed to, the way she would want to on the tennis court. And of course, all of us tennis fans, or at least all of us with any sense of decency, can completely understand her. Her decision It's the end of a saga that, quite frankly, is a blemish on all of the tennis world, whether it's the organizers at the Grand Slam level, so many of us journalists, probably myself included, who reacted so harshly to her decision to not attend press conferences for the duration of this Grand Slam event. And unfortunately, it's a piece of news that certainly overshadowed so many of the results we saw unfold today in Paris. Now, what I want to do on this podcast, it's just going to be me, riding. Han Solo, I obviously want to offer my reaction and want to offer further details, further context to Naomi's decision to withdraw from the event. Of course, I also do want to recap the play we saw unfold on day 2 of this French Open because there were some spectacular results some phenomenal tennis that I want to keep all of you listeners up to date on and certainly you know again while we give Naomi Osaka her time her space whatever she needs to get to the point where she can return to the court in the meantime we've got a second grand slam unfolding on this 2021 calendar we want to ensure all of you listeners have all the information you need to continue to enjoy the tennis but again That's the plan for today's podcast. Talk about Naomi's decision, its impact, recap some of the best matches on the day, run through the rest of the day's results, and then, of course, preview all of day three's action as well. Of course, the reason we're able to do that day in, day out here on the Mini Break Podcast is because of the support we get from all of you listeners, from our Crack Rackets Patreon family, and, of course, from our friends at Midwest Sports. Go to MidwestSports.com, use that promo code CR15 to get 15 percent off your order free two-day shipping on all orders exceeding 75 dollars and best of all a free can of wilson extra duty tennis balls midwestsports.com that promo code is cr15 by using it not only will you let them know we sent you there but again you'll get some deals and you will get the best staff in the business helping you find whatever you need to ensure you have the optimum equipment set up to get your best performance on the tennis court Again, MidwestSports.com, that promo code is CR15. With that in mind, let's start with the big story. Naomi Osaka electing to withdraw from the 2021 French Open, and rather than parse her words, rather than, again, offer my spin immediately, I just want to read all of you listeners in case you aren't on Tennis Twitter, in case you didn't have the chance to read her statement announcing her decision. Here's how the statement goes. Hey, everyone. I, this isn't a situation I ever imagined or intended when I posted a few days ago. I think now the best thing for the tournament, the other players, and my well-being is that I withdraw so that everyone can get back to focus on the, focusing on the tennis going on in Paris. I never wanted to be a distraction, and I accept that my timing was not ideal and my message could have been clearer. More importantly, I would never trivialize mental health or use the term lightly. The truth is that I've suffered long bouts of depression since the U.S. Open in 2018, and I've had a really hard time coping with that. Anyone that knows me knows I'm introverted, and anyone that has seen me at the tournaments will notice that I'm often wearing headphones as that helps dull my social anxiety. Though the tennis press has always been kind to me, and I want to apologize especially to all of the cool journalists who I may have heard, only Naomi Osaka is a classy enough individual to apologize to people when she's speaking about something so personal. That's me editorializing, but again, you have to praise her and her class, her grace, everything about Naomi Osaka reflected in this statement. I am not a natural public speaker and get huge waves of anxiety before I speak to the world's media. I get really nervous and find it stressful to always try to engage and give you the best answers I can. So here in Paris, I was already feeling vulnerable and anxious, so I thought it was better to exercise self-care and skip the press conference. I announced it preemptively because I do feel like the rules are quite outdated in parts, and I wanted to highlight that. I wrote privately to the tournament apologizing and saying that I would be more than happy to speak with them after the tournament as the slams are after the tournament as the slams are intense. I'm going to take some time away from the court now, but when the time is right, I really want to work with the tour to discuss ways we can make things better for the players, press, and fans. Anyways, hope you all are doing well and staying safe. Love you guys. I'll see you when I see you. I mean just right away. How can you not feel the vulnerability, the emotion in that statement? And it takes such grace, some such poise. We've all in our lives, anyone who's listening to this podcast— felt embarrassed about a decision we've made in the past, whether it's something as small as, you know, maybe you got caught in a white lie to your friend. You told them, hey, I'm doing something tonight. I can't hang out. Then they see a photo of you emerge and they're like, oh, so you're lying to me. Or whether it's, you know, perhaps even bigger than that. Maybe you've had some trouble with, you know, again, you're in college and you get a ticket or you get cited for something that you weren't supposed to be doing when you're underage. Whatever it may be, we've all been in this position And the hardest thing to do is to speak publicly about it, to say sorry, to apologize, to just have to explain the feelings you are going through. And for Naomi Osaka, whose platform is perhaps larger than any player in tennis, larger than Serena, larger than Federer, Djokovic, Nadal, she was the highest grossing female athlete on the planet. These past two seasons, you can only imagine the pressures that come with that sort of Again, respon I guess with that sort of reward, with that sort of responsibility of, you know, carrying that mantle, representing so many different companies, all of the various things Naomi Osaka does, uh, you can only imagine the wear that has on her. And then on top of all of that, she's expected to be on court and deliver, and she's expected to come to the press conference and answer for her uh, I suppose performance on court as well as everything else in her life too. Complete strangers who don't have the complete context, don't completely understand what she's going through. And again, to some of you listeners who are thinking, this is hypocritical of you, Alex. Didn't you criticize earlier in the week, not necessarily Naomi Osaka, but to any player who avoids the responsibility of speaking to the press because that is you know the deal you make as a professional athlete the media is going to provide you spotlight going to provide you glory and glorify all of your accomplishments and in response we ask you for 5 10 15 minutes after each and every match and you know again I'm not going to relitigate that conversation if you want to hear it go listen to the day one recap I did uh with Gil Gross as well as our top 5 men's contenders where we talked about it extensively at the top as well um look i i It's impossible to feel... I don't think we made light... You know, again, I I don't regret any of the words because we fully discussed. We, we, were, we weren't trying to rag on Naomi Osaka. We were discussing the process and why we think, in general, the relationship between media, tennis players, tennis events, and the way media is conducted can be changed moving forward, the flaws in that process, but also the responsibility. Look, we all understand there's not, you know, tennis isn't football. Tennis isn't basketball. Tennis isn't soccer. There's not this immense global stage. There's not billions in Billions of dollars uh, within the sport. And, you know, for us to continue to market the sport, for us to continue to grow the sport, there has to be a working and healthy relationship between those playing it and those in the media covering it and trying to glorify it, trying to amplify it, trying to build the base of tennis fans across the globe. But quite simply, mental health trumps all of that. And this is as serious and as, you know, again, uh, in terms of just the statements th- this is everything this is everything that mental health is about. This is about the fact that if a player is not comfortable not only answer you know answering questions that are so deeply personal and so uh, you know deeply penetrating to every aspect of their life. Then they shouldn't be doing that, and it's a credit to Naomi Osaka, and it's a huge testament to her self-awareness to be like, you know what, I am not ready to do this right now, and not only is this affecting my, you know, off-court mentality, it's affecting my performance on the court as well. So you can completely understand her decision to withdraw. And again, for us tennis fans, it's devastating because we all know right now in women's tennis, when Naomi Osaka plays her best, she's just better than everyone else out there. And as tennis fans, she is one of our most marketable stars. And to have her removed from this event, it's going to hurt the tournament the rest of the way. And it's just... It's mortifying that the tennis ecosystems at a place where a story like this trumps everything we've seen on the court, trumps everything we've seen. You know, you look at your notifications today on your phone, you got a Washington Post update, you got an AP update, you got an ESPN update. All the big journalistic enterprises are talking about this story, not the tennis that we're actually seeing unfold. They're talking about this story, and, you know, that's actually concerning. ...for the sport moving forward. That it takes an incident like this to gain worldwide notoriety, that's a problem for the sport moving forward, but that's a separate issue to the issue on hand which was the pylon on Naomi Osaka. And again, we here at Crack Rackets tried our best to be nuanced, but to be honest, we clearly could have done a better job. And it's impossible to understand someone's struggles. And for Naomi, again, to be this vulnerable, to open up herself and to discuss the actual problems she's going through, that's immense. It's going to be immensely impactful to anyone else out there who has suffered from any long bout of depression or any sort of mental struggle. And hopefully this is a signal to the rest of the tennis world that, hey, we, the tennis community, will be here for you. And again, there are reprehensible people. I'm not going to name them. I'm not going to offer them a platform, but they're out there. And I hate the straw man of attacking tennis media, but there are people out there who did use this as a pile-on, who did say, well, she shouldn't be in the event anyways. And I talked about this yesterday or two days ago with Gil, or I guess this was yesterday at this point, but you know, anyone who amplifies someone in their Twitter response with a retweet who speaks stupidly and is... I don't know what other term to say about this sort of issue. Don't amplify them. Don't offer them that retweet. Don't give them the platform they're looking for with a reprehensible opinion. I think we can all agree, again, for Naomi Osaka, it's a deeply personal issue. You can completely understand this decision. Now, again, do we need to reimagine the way we conduct uh, tennis media, the relationship between journalists and players? Yes. Do we need to reexamine the role of the press conference? Evidently, we absolutely do. Now, am I a fan of the press conference? Absolutely, because I do think that access is, you know, monumentally helpful, not just for the journalists who are trying to write stories like myself or trying to have access, trying to, again, expand uh, just the way we are able to cover the sport, provide a more personal first hand account from these players, provide greater detail to all of you fans, Uh, But it's just a valuable resource to holding players accountable as well. Now, there are clearly too many bad apples in those press rooms. That's the consensus. And again, I'm sure some of you would like me to call out names. I'm not going to do that because the journalists I've interacted with are all professionals professionals. Again, Courtney Wynn, there's a clip of her talking to Naomi. I believe it was Charleston, either 2019, 2020 you could tell Naomi was struggling in that press conference, but you could also tell the care with which Courtney asked those questions. She wasn't trying to pile on. She wasn't trying for clickbait. She was sincerely trying to wonder what Naomi was going through and how best to communicate that so that we as a tennis community could help response. And there has been so many heartfelt responses, you know, in particular, Coco Golf stands out. And, you know, Outside, even the tennis community, Steph Curry, Jamal Hill, Carrie Champion, all these various people who have come to speak to Naomi's defense. And that's just so heartwarming to see, absolutely. Um, at the same time, we absolutely, again, we need to re-examine the relationship between tennis and tennis media. There's often the straw man attacked by, by tennis Twitter personalities, by random tweeters out there saying, oh, I, I bet I could do it better if I had access to the press room. Well, you know, I hope you don't think that after this anymore. If you do think that, again, I'm looking for solutions. You don't think the press conference is a good idea. Well, what do you think is a good idea? What is the best way to provide access? I know. Again, talking with Racket Magazine, they say, let us run the press conference. We'll run a tighter ship. The people who get in will be much more qualified to that. I say, no, you know, you're still just a third-party entity with your own agenda the same way the ATP, the WTA would have their own agenda. And again, I'm using Racket Magazine as a straw man here, just an example. I apologize. But clearly a third-party entity in power and control of these press access, well, that doesn't work. Giving, you know, having players themselves be the only ones who determine who they speak to and what questions they answer, that's not going to work as well. So we need to think beyond that. And I wish I had solutions for you, listeners, right away. I don't. Um, but certainly, again, it, it's so crushing that this now will hover over this entire French Open because, of course, we only get four Grand Slams every season at the same time. It's impossible to feel anything, at least if you're a if you're a credible human being, if you're someone anyone wants to be around, if it's incredible to feel anything, impossible to feel anything but empathy, sympathy, just, again, compassion for what Naomi Osaka is going through. So, again, Osaka withdraws from the 2021 French Open. If there's anything she can do, hopefully we as a tennis community, all of you Crack Rackets listeners, will rally around her. And, again, if you disagree with me, Please tweet at me. Tell me why. You think, you know, press, it, whatever it may be, I will listen to your responses. I will not amplify. <laughs> I hope I've made that clear because my tolerance for it is at a minimum at this point, And that's for a number of different reasons, which we can discuss later. I suppose if you really want to hear the scoop, become a Patreon member as perhaps I may share the details there. But again, show some respect, show some class, don't be an <laughs> Uh, and we can all understand what Naomi Osaka is going through. All we can hope for is that she recovers as quickly as possible. Now, with that in mind, there is one more detail to throw in here, and it's the joke. From the Grand Slams, FFT in particular, French Tennis Federation uh, President Gilles Moraton made a statement in French, now in English, and then in English, which he repeated without answering questions. He said, "The outcome of Naomi withdrawing from Roland Garros is unfortunate. We wish her the best and the quickest possible recovery, and we look forward to having Naomi in our tournament next year. As all the Grand Slams, the WTA, the ATP, and the ITF, we remain very committed to all athletes' well-being and to continually improving every aspect of players' experience." In our tournament Including with the media Like we have always strived to do Thank you I mean that's a joke It's an absolute joke and for him to leave without answering questions after criticizing, finding Naomi Osaka for not agreeing to do press, I'm sure if you said, "Hey, Naomi, go out, give a 30 second statement, leave," that's a whole different scenario. That's a, its a joke. It's the epitome of a hip- hypocrisy. It's once again tennis shooting itself in the foot. The people in power not being held accountable by anyone. And again, it's a f- joke. I don't know what else to say. I'm sorry for swearing this passionately. I'm you know again swearing this frequently. I should say uh, early on in the podcast, it just, I mean, like, what are we doing? What are we doing here? Uh, the the Grand Slams who have never coordinated anything in history not ever coordinate this statement piling on Naomi Osaka, now they don't have accountability to admit that they're part of the problem in this scenario, and again, we're all a bit a part of the problem. The entire ecosystem of the relationship between athletes, media, fans, needs to be re-examined. There's no denying that, but just, it's ridiculous. It's absolutely ridiculous, and Again, whoever the PR team is at the French Open, whoever the PR team is, don't don't bill. don't Don't bill whomever it is you're billing this month because you failed. You did not do your job well. It's disappointing to hear because, again, it's a grand slam. It's supposed to be two weeks of celebration for all of us tennis fans. And now, the first two days, the first really five days leading even up to this event have been clouded by something that really could have been avoided with proper care, proper work behind the scenes. But anyways... That's 15 minutes on this topic. I think that's enough. Of course, I do want to hear, because I know you Crack Rackets fans do have nuance, are well-spoken, well-thought people who have ideas for the betterment of the sport moving forward. So again at Great Shot pod at crack rackets, you know where to find me. What do you think the relationship between the media and fans and tennis players should look like? I'm fascinated to hear it because certainly this is a conversation that will persist beyond the 2021 French Open. But with that in mind, let's pivot back to the action because there really were some spectacular matches played along the grounds. In particular, women's tennis stole the show. Across the board, we had upsets galore. We had fantastic three set battles. Of course, the men were pretty entertaining as well. But the match I got to start with, and shout out to David Kane who made this joke it's not often you have a Grand Slam final quality match in the first round. Legitimately, through the first two sets and then the end of the third set. That's what we had in Sonia Kennan taking on, I suppose, 2017 uh, French Open champ Alonia Astapenko, who we know as Yelena, but I believe she prefers to be called Alonia. I'm just going to call her Astapenko. I mean, this match was a fantastic contrast of styles because you have someone in Sonia Kennan who's the epitome of of death by a 1,000 paper cuts, who wants to play the angles, wants to take the ball early, go down the line, who's going to throw junk at you, slice and drop shots and 20 feet above the net elevated uh, topspin depth uh, ground strokes as well. Versus Ostapenko, who's got one speed. And that one speed, again, as a Grand Slam owner, I joked about it with Gil. She owns that back corner house in Serena Williams Power Tennis Country Club that no one talks about, but we all know to fear the owner there because on her best days, she's as scary as anyone. And there were moments in this match, just pockets, where Ostapenko was simply sensational. I mean, you look at the numbers in that second set, which she ended up taking, and in this match, Kennen earned a six four four six six three victory. 14 winners against 11 unforced errors. She made 63% of her first serves and won 68% of those points. 6 of 11 on second serve points. 2 of 4 on her breakpoint chances. Only faced one breakpoint in the set. The problem is Sonia Kennan kept making her work. She kept, again, taking that ball early down the line, working uh, the short angles, just never offering Ostapenko the same look at a ball twice in a row because you can't do that because if you offer Ostapenko time to set in the middle to load on either the forehand or the backhand wing, you're screwed. The match is over. She's going to hit through you, particularly when she's playing as confident as she has of late, and I know the rankings, the numbers may not reflect that fact, but if you've watched Ostapenko play at all, really since the tour resumed in August, you know, she's 18 and 14 overall, which isn't a number that jumps out to you. She's currently ranked number 44, which isn't a number that jumps out to you, but quarterfinals in Rome and you know uh, i believe she made round she just she isn't losing first round matches anymore the last time she lost a first round match was the australian open which well, she ended up losing to eventual semifinalist Karolina Mukova. That's uh, that, and her Rome loss to Magda Lynette, which I believe was her first match back after the pandemic, are her only two first round losses. And considering the fluctuations in level we had seen from Ostapenko since she won that Grand Slam title, that is a step forward. And again, I'll continue to say it her top speed is as good as anyone, but. You know, A, just kind did such a good job of keeping her honest in this match, of moving the ball around the court. And I mentioned those 14 winners against 11 unforced errors in the second set. For the rest of the match, she had 18 winners against 37 unforced errors so she knows she's plus three in the set she wins minus 19 in the other two sets that's a testament to the constant pressure Kennan kept on her and I gotta say shout out to the line judge in this match because Ostapenko, Kennan they were questioning every call and the chair umpire must have come out first streak in that second set I think legitimately seven times in a row where he was like nope this ball marks out nope oh you're right this ball marks in nope this ball marks out nope this ball marks out and hey he made his money's worth he did his job to to the fullest but again you gotta give credit to, Osta, uh, to Sonia Kennan who didn't serve her best she only made 58% of her first serves only won 57% Of those first serve points, forty-four percent of her second serve points, you know, faced twelve break points to compare to the ten she created for herself. But she was nine of ten on break point chances. She was, you know, she won sixty-four percent of Ostapenko's second serve points, and you know, overall she won fifty-five percent of her returning points to Ostapenko's forty-eight percent. She was so effective. Taking that return early, going both down the line, cross-court, opening up the court for herself, mixing in the drop shot, mixing in the variety. Again, a credit to Ostapenko, who was very decisive in this match, 14 of 18 at the net, when she had the opportunity to hit the same ball twice in a row, she went for broke. She, you know, again, you don't want to get in long rallies with Sonia Kenton because if you do, you're done. She just has enough variety. She's going to work you around the court, create, you know, go cross court, then a little bit further cross court, then a little bit further cross court. And now all of a sudden the down the line's open. She beats you to the spot, takes that ball early, or she crosses you over, hits the drop shot before you know it. You're, you're just done on the clay because you can't recover to that ball quick enough Kenan, she brought out the entire toolkit. She brought out all of the tools in this match. Again, uh, she ends up earning a six four four six six three victory. She was cramping physically at the end, not quite cramping, but you could tell she was hurting. Physically and again for Sonia Kennan of late, it's not as though you look at her numbers, she's been anything spectacular, particular here in the twenty twenty one season and she was dealing with health issues. She's now seventeen and twelve in her last fifty two, still only eight and eight here in the twenty twenty one season, but she did enough. She really did do enough to ultimately advance in this match. And again, you look at just the various levels of rally. And I have to say, once again, you got to give a shout-out to the French Open website. They do such a good job with their statistics here uh, compared to, respectfully, some of the other ones. They have all the Infosys stats available. You look at the various rally types. A, when Kennan had a plus one ball, she took advantage of it. And that was so key because you can't give Ostapenko a second look in a rally. If you have the opportunity to put her away, put her away. Kennan wins 78 of the zero to four shot rallies, Ostapenko 65. If you look beyond that, they were essentially even in the five plus shot rallies, 25 for Kennan, 26 for Ostapenko Kenan took care of her plus one chances. She, again, kept Ostapenko in the move. The variety was really with that plus one ball, whether it was down the line, cross court, short angle, or drop shot. She used a little bit of everything. In fact, they even have stroke summary available for you. How awesome is that? And you look for her, she was five of six on drop shots. That's not true. I Like, respectfully, she was a little bit higher than that. But
0: Daily live coverage begins Monday, May 20th. Stream it now with Tennis Channel Plus to be there when it happens.
1: You know, uh, when Ostapenko had her chances, when she was hitting through Kennan and she goes on a run, I think she ripped off uh, four games in a row to take a 4-1 lead in that second set. Her top gear still looks as good as everyone, but Kennan has that plan B, has that plan C, has that plan D. She flexed all of them today. And ultimately, she gets a much needed and very impressive win 6 4, 4 6, 6 3 to advance to the second round. Where now she's got a date with fellow American Haley Baptiste. Certainly, that is a winnable match. And, you know, the worst thing that could happen for many of these players, don't let Sonia Kennan get momentum on her side. Don't let her find her best form by that second week. Because if you do, guess what? Uh, She's a finalist, the defending finalist here last week, and she does have the toolkit, does have the movement, the athleticism to make a deep run here. It's a fantastic performance for Sonia Kennan to advance to round number two. Let's flip gears now, talk about another youngster on the men's side who probably earns the win Not of his career, but the first five-set win of his career. And certainly, again, when you're establishing yourself in the top 20 of the ATP rankings, top 15, even in his case where he wants to go top 10, top of the men's tennis game, you need to scrap out the five-set wins. You need to be able to prove you can come back from two sets to one down. That's exactly what Yannick Sinner did today, fighting off a match point in the fourth set to earn a 6-1, 4-6, 6-7, 7-5, 6-4 victory over Pierre's herbert First things first, shout out to the French crowd. They are spectacular, and they are a reminder of why crowds were so dearly missed here at these professional events, whether it was the benoit Pair match, which honestly brought a tear to any tennis fan's eyes to see Pierre, who has struggled so much with motivation over Really, since the pandemic, uh, since the tour came back from the pandemic, to see the emotion on his face after he dropped his match to Casper Ruud, and to hear them go Allez Benoit, Alle Benoit," or "Benoit, Benoit, Benoit," it was just that was the motivation for him, and also clearly gotten Casper Ruud's head, and respectfully. I think they got in Yannick Sinner's head a little bit in sets 2 and 3. And Bear plays such an aggressive game style, right? He's trying to move forward the moment you leave a ball in the center. He's hitting an approach shot, whether it's a backhand slice. He's still one of the few players who can master the chip in charge. Or whether it's down the line, short angle, cross court. And then he anticipates and covers so well at the net. He was excellent in this match. And guess what? When you're at the baseline deficit, uh, when you're not going to win the ground stroke rallies, you got to come to the net a bunch. He came to the net 72 times, just kept putting pressure on Sinner, didn't let Sinner get into his patterns, and, you know, wasn't content just going baseline rallies with Yannick Sinner, and look, 58 winners to 62 unforced errors when you're trying to pull off an upset, that's precisely the sort of margin you have to play with. You gotta be a little risky, you gotta take your chances, and that's exactly what Air Bear did. Again, 42-72 at the net, that's not a great conversion rate, but that's a testament to the pressure he put on Yannick Sinner that he was only minus four with how risky a game style he was playing in terms of winner to unforced error that's a testament to his success but you know who responded exceptionally well didn't get rattled in terms of game style and stayed the course Yannick Sinner who made 62 percent of his first serves played aggressive first strike tennis whenever he had the opportunity to keep air bear on his back foot he did so and the numbers reflect that fact. You look for Yannick Sinner. He won 29 more 0-4 to four shot rallies than Air Bear. He won 121 to Air Bears 92. That's a testament to the fact that, look, when Air Bear left a return, whether it was that backhand slice return or honestly any slice return, which Air Bear hits quite a bit in singles, Sinner went after the plus-one ball. And he said, nope, once you give me a slice in the center, we're playing my patterns. And Air Bear could not beat Yannick Sinner's patterns and that was the difference in this match particularly over time and Look, credit to Air Bear. He won 48 of the five-plus shot rallies, two sinners 42. That's not a number you expect, but that's a testament to Air Bear. It wasn't always plus one tennis. It was, okay, I'm going to make my first serve, and that was ultimately the downfall for Air Bear, that he only made 52% of his first serves. And by the way, that was a number. Made 47% in set number four, 45% in set number five. That was the thing that betrayed him most down the home stretch. Uh, but it wasn't just like, it wasn't reckless plus one, rush the net as quickly as possible. It was, okay, the first ball is going down the line. The second ball is going the other direction, regardless of if it was a forehand or backhand. He just attacked the open space, kept Yannick Sinner on the move, misfooted him when the opportunities presented themselves, and then again, got to the net, anticipates so well when he's up there, put the pressure on Yannick Sinner, but the young Italian delivered. And again, it's his first five-set win of his career. You look at the numbers for him, 43 winners against 36, unforced errors, to not get slap happy, to be able to remain patient and wait for his opportunities to present themselves, that's a testament to the maturity, the development of Yannick Sinner, who again was a quarter-finalist here at the French Open last year, and now he's seeded, the number 18 seed. He's expected to win these matches, which is crazy to think given he's, what, 19, still 20 years old maybe later this year. I mean, Sinner played a good match, and again, Bear got to match point. But Sinner hits a big serve, big plus one ball, and again the zero to four shot rallies. He dominated when he was able to get in his play. Bear just didn't have the firepower, the consistency, the skill set to one up Sinner to hang with him. And Yannick Sinner ultimately again wins the match in five six one four six six seven seven five six four. And you look now for Yannick Sinner moving forward here in this event. I believe he's now got a match with a fellow Italian Gianluca Magere. It's a very winnable match certainly, and he'll be able to play a little bit more baseline tennis here moving forward, but again you look for Yannick Sinner. This is the match you have to win in a Grand Slam. When you play the unconventional game style, the guy who, quite frankly, you're better than, uh, the guy who you have more things you can do, but who just unconventionally is going to put a ton of pressure on you, Sinner gets over the hump. You look for him. There's a reason ELO rating, all of these ratings love him so much. And In fact, just a quick update, Yannick Sinner right now, number 12 in terms of 2021 ELO rating. You look for him, court ELO rating. He's actually a little bit on the lower side. Right now, number 21, due to the fact that he just doesn't have that that many uh, clay court matches. But he's number 8 in overall ELO. I have to say that feels right. It does feel like Yannick Sinner is going to be in the top 10 sooner rather than later. It's funny. You look at the guys above him. Team, Zverev, Rublev. I don't think he is on that tier yet. But Berrettini, Rude, Kareno Busta, Reynich, Karatsev, the guys below him immediately. That is the zone he hangs out with right now. You have to be that good to beat Yannick Sinner. This result, a testament to that fact. Five-set win for Yannick Sinner. He advances to the second round as well. And now, last deep dive match breakdown for you. It's funny because this was our biggest, I suppose, upset on the day, but it's tough to call it an upset just given, you know, again, the health struggles, the issues Bianca Andrescu has had of late, like, or just, it's not even the health issues, it's just the lack of match play she has. She's only played, you know, the one warm up event in between Miami and now. It was last week in Strasbourg. She got two wins before retiring in preparation for for this event, and you look for her still, in terms of WTA-level matches she's played in her career on clay, you know, and this was Andrescu's 8th career WTA-level clay court match, you want to even go beyond WTA-level, just talk about all levels, it's only her 22nd uh, professional clay court match, and she's still, you know, 16-6 and six overall in professional level clay court matches, she's 5-3 and three now in tour-level matches, but... We still need to see a larger sample size from her. We still haven't quite seen her game translate to this surface, but you know whose game has certainly translated to Clay Court's? Uh, Tamara Zidancic, the 23-year-old, now uh, currently ranked 85, coming into this event. She's 17-15 in her last 52 weeks, but you narrow that down to clay. She's 12-7. and 7. All of those wins have come at the WTA level where, you know, she made a final in Bogota, where she ended up losing an incredible three-set match, one of my favorites of the year, to Osorio Serrano. She then goes to Madrid, qualifies, wins around before losing in three to Ashley Barty. She qualified in Rome as well before she lost a match. You know, she beat Sloan Stevens, but then ended up getting knocked out by Bernarda Pera in round one. And here she delivers the match of her career. First win over a top 10 player. She knocks off Andrescu 6 7, 7 6, 9 7. Worth noting, Andrescu served for the match up 5 4 in the third. Didn't reach match point, but certainly it felt like she had the match on her racket. And, you know, the big thing for BB, one to four, you know, zero the four shot rallies. She won those, uh, the you know, 85 to 81 for Zidanezik. But that Zidanezik was able to keep that gap as narrow as it was is a testament to, you know, A, tomorrow Zedanzik can absolutely whoop the forehand. And some of you may remember, some of you may not, Zidanezik last year was up big on Garbine Muguruza, felt like she was going to win that match in three. Muguruza ended up scrapping it out 8-6 in the thirds. Gotta feel good for Zidanezik to get over the hump in this one, as she wasn't able to do in that one. And the key in this match was first strike tennis when Andreescu was able to get in her patterns, hit the big forehand, whether it's inside in, cross court, down the line, whatever it may be. You know, again, she looked like Bianca freaking Andrescu. She looked like a Grand Slam champion, someone who, when she's playing front foot tennis, you're not going to beat her. And I actually think moving forward, the fitter Andrescu gets coming into a tournament, not, you know, again, this is not me criticizing her fitness. I'm just saying when she's at her fittest entering a uh, a tournament on clay, I don't think movement on the surface is going to be an issue. But look, Zdancic won 61 of the five plus shot rallies, Andrescu won 43. You look at the even broader numbers than that, uh, Zedanzik in this match, 41 winners against 46 unforced errors, Andrescu, 40 winners, so that's one fewer than Zdancic, but 17 more unforced errors at 63. She had to pull the trigger early in rallies or from uncomfortable positions because she just couldn't hang. With Zidancic physically in this one, and Zidancic did such a good job changing directions with her forehands. Cross court, down the line, cross court, down the line, just keeping Andrescu on the move, not letting Andrescu hit from the same spot in the court twice in a row. And I know that's a constant theme in these match breakdowns, but that's the key when you're playing clay court tennis and you look you know, beyond that. 17 breakpoint chances for Zidancic. She's 7 of 17 to Andrescu, 6 of 13. Mark Zidancic. 15 of 18 at the net when the opportunity presented itself. She put those points away to Andrescu's 12 of 18. You look, you know, again, second serve points. When Zidancic was able to get a look at a second serve play first strike, she held Andrescu to 19 of 50 on Andrescu's second serve points. Meanwhile, Zidancic 49%, which isn't great, but that's good enough. 24 of 49 on her second serve. She was able to scrap herself out of some big Andrescu returns, although it's worth noting. If Andreescu lands a few more first serves in that 5-4 game, and she did not land many in it, she's probably walking out of this one as the champion. And again, in a 6-7, 7-6, 9-7 uh, decision, certainly Andreescu's going to have a million chances. You look at the total points won in this match, 142-129. to 129. Andreescu literally had the match on her racket. And so long-term, am I concerned by this loss? <laughs> Absolutely not for Bianca Andreescu. The When she looked good... She looked very good in this match. I think this result tells me more, again, about Tamara Zedanzik, who is clearly coming, folks. I think she's going to inch closer to that career high of number 56, which she reached back in 2019, later on in the year. The forehand backswing's big, but when she hits that ball, again, the heaviness of it... You just have trouble recovering, and she did a really good job in this match of being assertive with that forehand, moving it around the court, and again, hit through the backhand wing as well, put a ton of returns in play on the match point in particular. She hits like a lob return that had Andrescu all the way pushed back against the back fence, and then she moves forward after that, hits the approach shot. This was just a really good match from Tamara Zdancic, who did enough to withstand the first strike tennis of Andrescu, play first strike tennis on her own to ultimately earn the victory and advance uh, in the 9-7 in the third set. And again, you look for Zdancic now that she's taken out the seed, uh, the draw opens up for her. She's absolutely the favorite against Madison Brangle in round number two, and Brangle's win over Asorio Serrano was one of the more shocking ones of the day. I was you know, again, on paper, Asorio Serrano and Rescue was one of the second round matches I imagine a lot of us were looking forward to, but Tamara Zidanzik is going to be at a power advantage. I also think she's more comfortable moving on the clay than Madison Bringle moving forward, and I will be surprised. Uh, you know, you hope there's no hangover after a result like this, and there often can be, but I will be thoroughly surprised if we do not see Tamara Zedanzik in the third round. She was that good today, and she advances again 9-7 in the third set. Over Bianca Andrescu. Now, those are the breakdowns on the day, but there were some other upset matches that went the distance. And again, results I do want to touch on here. And again, it's me, Han Solo. Going to try not to do that too frequently throughout this podcast. Going to try and bring in as many voices as possible. We had a late cancellation. I'm not going to call that person out uh, because I'm hoping to get them on the podcast again. And I know they listen, so I don't want to get myself in trouble. But, you know, again, Upsets were the theme of the day on the women's side. We had five of them across the board. Was it an upset that young power hitting player Marta Kostyuk defeated Garbine Muguruza? First top twenty win of her career, I believe, one of her first Grand Slam wins of her careers as well. Six one six four over the number twelve seed. Yes and no. It's an upset in how dominant she was, and you know she came back from a breakdown. Was down, I believe. Three-one in that second set, ripped off five consecutive games. Excuse me, four consecutive games to take a five-three lead. Muguruza had match points. Muguruza ended up holding though for five-four, and then Kostyuk able to close that match out with relatively little drama. I said this on Twitter, you guys know, there's nothing I enjoy more than quoting myself. She's got f***ing power. Or it's just ridiculous. And again, I talk about Serena Williams' Power Tennis Country Club, and I'm going to have Jeff Sackman, who I believe is one of the board members alongside of me in that country club, on the Great Shot podcast tomorrow to talk about if it's time for us to expand and add a couple of new entries to that list, or at least people on the waiting list. Kostiuk's one of them. And I'm sorry, if you do not have her in your rising stars list, if you do not think she is a future, I don't want to say Grand Slam champion, but multi-time title winner in women's tennis, you're just not doing this right. And you look for Kostyuk and where she's at right now in the live rankings. You look at the success she's had already uh, this early in her career. I mean, she was the finalist early in the season, right, in Abu Dhabi. And you look for Kostyuk. I believe it was COVID that kept her out of the uh, 2021 Australian Open. But now the 18-year-old up to number 80 in the live rankings, which is three off of her career high. You look at what she's accomplished on tour. Really, now that she's able to play full-time, the results she's been able to put together. She's 31-15 and in her last 52 weeks. Again, that includes run two. Uh, last year, she qualified, lost first round, but did qualify for Roland Garros. She made the third round of the U.S. Open. She qualified for Prague, qualified for, uh, didn't qualify, but played qualifying at Palermo. Now, she gets into these events on her own ranking. She was, a uh, you know, after that finals, um, oh no, she was able, I was thinking of Paula Bedosa-Jabert. She had COVID and wasn't able to play the Australian Open. Kostjuk was able to, you know, it was a first round loss to her to Kudermatova, which is certainly a loss you can understand. Now, the loss to Peronkova in Miami in three sets, that's certainly a head-scratcher. But since then, on the clay, semifinals of Istanbul, she beat Kazikina, she beat Konya before losing to Kristea. She had to play qualifying in Madrid and Rome. She was able to qualify in Rome, beating Habino, beating Brancaccio before losing to Alexandrova. Now, she gets the win over a hampered Garbine Muguruza, and that is something worth noting. It was clear Garbine Muguruza, who's got a back issue, uh, was not at her healthiest. But still, it, you got to go out and beat that player, and that's what Kostyuk was able to do. She just The ball absolutely explodes off of her racket. She looks comfortable moving on the surface as well. She's a stud. She's only going to get better from here. Just keep your eye on Marta Kostic. When she ends the year inside the top 50, maybe even inside the top 40, it should surprise none of you because she's got top 10 upside, folks, maybe even higher than that. You just can't teach that sort of power. You can't teach that sort of edge, that mentality, her ability to, again, get over the finish line in a match like this. Fantastic performance from her. Your other updates on the day, uh, upsets on the day, updates. Updates on the upsets. Hey, great shot. Polona Herzog, 6-1, 3-6, 6-4 win over number 16 seed Kiki Burtons, who still is trying to find her rhythm post-injury. And I, that's not really an upset given Herzog's prowess on this surface. Her creativity just kind of threw Burtons for a loop, but that's a good match. You know, Kirstea knocking off number 19 seed Joe Conta. Conta struggled so mightily of late. I just mentioned Kirsteia making that semifinal run and deeper in Istanbul. Uh, she's just such a tough out on the clay. 6-2 win for her and then Camilla Georgie was actually up a set and a break big on Petra Martic and it's a credit to Martic that she was able to come back and there's a tweet in my draft asking what happened to Petra Martic but she really did impose her variety kept fighting takes that second set breaker ultimately the power of Giorgi wins out though 6-2 6-7 6-4 Yes, that's an up, upset, particularly an ELO rating upset, as Martic is one of the top 15 players on Tennis Abstract's ELO ratings via the clay court ELO rating, but sure, she just hit through her, was the better player, ultimately earns the victory. Now, on the men's side, you know, oddsmakers had Lorenzo Musetti as a favorite over David Goffin, and when he bageled Goffin in set number one, that was a result that I think caused all of us to kind of say, whoa. Like, what's going on here? But Goffin did steady the ship, and yet Lorenzo Musetti never wavered. And just, you know, I'm not going to do a deep dive breakdown here, but when you're trying to pull off an upset, what do you need to do? You need to make your first serve. Musetti made 71% of them. He won 71% of his first serve points. He was 6 of 13 on break point chances. He minimized his unforced errors. Only 27 of them on the day compared to 23 winners meanwhile you could tell Goffen felt the need to press and he hit 37 winners but against only 40 uh, against 48 unforced errors and it was funny you know Musetti served for the match up 5-4 uh, Goffin ends up breaking him. Uh, Musetti then serves for the match up 7-5, uh, I think 6-5 as well. I think Goffin ended up breaking him again. The end of the set got really, really funky. But then Musetti just sort of steadied the ship, made his returns in that third set breaker again, 0-5-6. It's a head-scratcher for David Goffin. There's no denying that, particularly because Musetti... He gives you a lot of chances, right? Because he likes to play six, seven, eight, nine, even 12 feet behind the baseline when the moment calls for it. And yet, it just felt like there was nothing Goffin could do to hit through him, and then once he'd try to hit through him, he would miss that ball a little wide or a little long, and that's how those 48 unforced errors started piling up. Nevertheless, I believe that's the first Grand Slam win for Lorenzo Musetti to get it over David Goffin. It's a testament to where how far he has come. He's won, I think, like 70% of his matches, 68% to be honest, but I'm rounding up there because, you know, well, you can round up every so often. 70% sounds better than 68 He's just been one of the breakthrough players, and you look for him now in... In the ATP rankings. He's inside the top 75, I believe, of the not live rankings with this result. In fact, he's up indeed to a new career high of number 69, which as a 19 year old, that's exactly where you want to be. He upsets David Goffin. And then, you know, Lloyd Harris knocks off Lorenzo Seneco, the number 26 seed, 756464. When Harris serves well, he's going to beat you. And that's what he did today. Uh, Gets the three-set win over Sineko. Now, in terms of your matches that went the distance, Vandrusova, three-set win over Kanepi. We knew that one was going to be tricky, but the variety of Vandrusova ends up outdoing the pace of Kanepi. Also had a three-set win from Jess Pagula, Daria Kasatkina, Sai Sai Zhang. With an upset, you could borderline say three sets over Sarah Saribas-Tormo. And then last year's uh, uh, quarterfinalist, excuse me, Trevisan, three-set win over Van Utvenik The other one I'd throw in there, Shelby Rogers had match points on Rebecca Pedersen, just unable to get over the hump. Pedersen kept fighting, kept clawing, and you could just tell Rogers a little drained after those match points went away in the third. 6-7, 7-6, 6-2 win for Pedersen to advance. On the men's side, two five setters on the day, both involving Americans. Francis Tiafo goes up two sets to love, but Jen, you know, he was nursing an injury coming into this event, and you could just tell physically the longer the match went on, the more it leaned towards Stevie J, Steve Johnson, six seven, three-six, six four, six two, six-one win over Tiafo. You know, that's a bunch of—I think that's like the fourth consecutive year Tiafos lost a tough first-round match at the French Open. Meanwhile, Stevie J, 10 wins, including qualifying at the French Open. If you include qualifying at every slam, that's the most wins he's had at any Grand Slam tournament. Steve Johnson, clay court specialist, not the pivot any of us expected when he was coming out of USC, but that's a confidence-boosting win for him. And then Tommy Paul— Chris O'Connell was actually quietly an exceptional match. And, you know, for TP to earn a 6-2, 6-4 first two sets, then O'Connell came out swinging. I mean, the man just did not miss a forehand. I know I tweeted this out, but it honestly felt like he was swinging on the forehand side with his eyes closed. That's how excellent he was uh, in those second two sets. And then Paul had a bunch of, you know, 30 alls or a couple of break point chances. It just felt like the break was coming and O'Connell kept hitting his way out of it, but ultimately TP gets the break. He was just the more well-rounded player of the two 10-8 in the fifth set that was a fantastic first round match though now in terms of your other day two results just to kind of blitz through everything let's start on the women's side Serena Williams faced I believe four set points no no, no not four set points but she won the last four points of her first set breaker against Bagu to advance 7-6-6-2 it wasn't her best tennis but again when she gets through a match like this early in the tournament does not bode well for the rest of the field. You got to beat her early because a confident Serena is a dangerous Serena, and we all know that fact. You know, Iga Swiatek 0 5 against her good friend Kaya Yuvan. She still hasn't dropped a set now in what, her last eight matches at Roland Garros. That ball just rips through the court. Her movement, so proficient on the service. Uh, Kaya Yuvan's coming, folks. She's another youngster. I've talked about her before, but Swiatek just too good. You know who was too good today? Belinda Bencic, much-needed confidence-boosting win. She absolutely hit through Nadia Podoroska, 6-love, six 6-3. Six I'm going to be honest, at no point did it feel like Bencic was under threat by anything last year's semifinalist was throwing at her. That's about as impressive of a win I've seen from Bencic throughout, as, uh, throughout this 2021 season. Your other winner... Always does it efficiently. Alisa Merton's 4 and 1 over Sanders. Now, in terms of your non seeded victories, uh, you had Caroline Garcia advancing to the second round once again. You had Diaz, Tan, Garacheva, Martin Sova, Mar- uh, Madison Brangle, which I mentioned was a surprising win over Osorio Serrano. And then Haley Baptiste, uh, the 19 year old American who Sandy Middleman, who we've had on this podcast, just raves about over and over. And over again, earns a 1-4 win over Blinkova. And now inside the top 200 comfortably is Baptiste. You look for her with this result, what this does for her rankings. Haley Baptiste now, uh, as I mentioned, inside the top 200 up to a new career high of number 165. And one more win at this slam gets her all the way up to number 153. Uh, which is where you want to be when you're 19 years old. Again, that means you're going to get into 75K, 100K, 125K. You'll even get into qualifying for some of the 250-level events. She's on the ride, folks. Uh, rise, folks, and just that power she can play with, her ability to play on her terms, certainly special, fantastic win for her over Blinkova. Now, on the men's side, you know, straight set wins, Uh, straight set win for Daniil Medvedev goes down to love in that first set tennis Twitter panics he then earns a 6-3, 6-3, 7-5 victory over Sasha Bublik who just didn't have a B-C or D plan Medvedev took away plan A which is the big first serve the big first strike that's what Medvedev does best again if he gets confident on this surface look out rest of the field because that bottom half of the draw is wide open there's no Dominic team it's really a race between the next geners: or Tsitsipas, Medvedev (sighs) You just the way Medvedev competes, you can't ever count him out. That was a tricky opponent. He manages to get through it in straight sets. Let's talk about the return of Federer for two seconds. I mean, what is there to say about Roger Federer that hasn't already been said? When it looks good, it looks damn good. Now, of course, Dennis Isteman, about as ideal of a strong round matchup as you could have for Roger, but he was in control of that match from start to finish. He had the flare, hit to the open court, the first serve was landing, the plus-one tennis was landing, the conditions felt perfect for him. He even looked like he was moving comfortably, which, given how little match play he has coming into this tournament, you weren't going to be sure about, but he dominated Isteman with a straight set victory as well. In terms of your other seeds on the day, I mentioned uh, Kasparud versus Benoit Pair. It was a four-set win for Rude. He was tentative. He was shaky in the end of that third set, faced a set point in his 5-6 service game. But then you felt like once he got to the breaker, that match was over. Now, that was the most inspired tennis I've seen Benoit Pair play in probably nine months. No, more than that. Probably 15 months since pre-pandemic. But, you know, Kasparud... He's a threat. Yeah, talk about that bottom half of the draw. He's not on the tsitsipas of medvedev tier, but he's just a tier below, and he is lingering, folks. So, you know, again, that's a great victory for him. Nothing to say about Basilishvili other than he won. I will say Taylor Fritz and Riley. A good day for the American seeds. Fritz, Isner, Opelka, all straight-set winners, all big servers, played plus-one tennis, played on their terms all match long. They were all exceptional. They all advanced to the second round. You know, good day for the college tennis players as well. I mentioned the Isner victory. Cam Norrie, three-set win over Bjorn for Tangelo. He continues his excellent form, just moves the ball around the court so well. It's a really fun game to watch. Dominic Koefer is confident, folks, and he's just got the game. Comfortable mover, low center of gravity, big forehand as well that he can move around the court. Backhand's not just a placeholder, it's dynamic as well. Now, he doesn't overwhelm you with any one skill, but he really does do a little bit of everything. Straight set win for him. The one college uh, male college tennis player who fell on the day, Arthur Rindernack, who felt like if he would have gotten that first set over Marin Cilic, that first set breaker, uh, that that could have been a completely different match, but he didn't kind of win away from there. Cilic, 7-6, 6-1, 6-2. Your other winners on the day, Nishioka may have defeated Sanga in his final French Open match, and if that is the final match, shame on the French Tennis Federation. I know I'm not the first to say this, but shame on them for scheduling at night in front of no fans. That should have been a primetime match, considering where Sanga's at in his career. My boy, Pedro Martinez-Portero, gets a little revenge from last year. Knocks off Sebi Corda, who just didn't have the legs today. Straight set win for him. Young Carlos Alcaraz, four-set win over Zapata Morales. That forehand just rips through the court. He is such a pleasure to watch. If you haven't, be sure to do so already. Your other winners on the day, Delbonis, Krajinovic, Mejir, Montiero, Matrzak, and then Jaume Munar, who I, I tweeted it out as a joke. Talk about your nightmare tennis match. I used to have nightmares about the never-ending rally, and then I'd wake up in a cold sweat. That's literally what the match between he and Jordan Thompson was. It was a four-set match that took five hours. Ultimately, Munar advances that he won that third set breaker felt like everything in that match because Munar was up a break early in that set, but he just couldn't put Thompson away. And again, that match, physicality at its finest, four-set win for Munar. But those are your day two results, and it sets up a very fun day three. Now, I will. Shameless plug here. If you want to hear some of my picks for day three, you can go listen to our Great Shot Podcast, Aces of the Day segments, which we will have for you every day the rest of this tournament. In terms of the matches, I'm going to be watching most closely. Shabur versus Putin Seva all the ingredients of a match that's going to go the distance. That may be my favorite on the board tomorrow in general. You've also got Brady Sevastova, Barty versus Para. I just think a lefty versus Barty is always interesting. Number 9 seed Karolina Pliskova versus Donna Vekic is fun. Alexandrova versus Venus, those are my favorite women's matches. On the men's side, you know, I really do think Sandgren's going to push Djokovic physically. I'm not saying he's going to win, but I do think that match could be like 5-6 and 1 or something like that. Nadal Popperin. Paparin's a former junior French Open champion. At least he's got the first serve, the big forehand, to play on his terms. If he's decisive, who knows what happens. I'm always going to watch Jensen Brooksby. He, him versus Aslan Karatsev. Those are two of the hottest players in men's tennis right now. That has the recipe to be fun. Upset alert is obviously Albert ramos Vinolas taking on number 14 seed, Gaël Monfils. And then... If Sun Wu Kwon beats Kevin Anderson tomorrow, is that an upset? I suppose I'll leave that judgment up to all of you. But those are my five favorite matches on the men's side. And again, we've got plenty more French Open content coming down the pipeline for all of you listeners. I'm going to be joined by Tennis Abstract's Jeff Sackman on the Great Shot podcast tomorrow. Again, I will have a co-host for these mini-break podcasts, hopefully every day moving forward, whether it's you know Slice Slice Baby, a.k.a. Jamie McDonald, whether it's Matt Sekowiak. I know we're going to get Gil Gross back on the line as well. Tons of fun French Open content for all of you listeners coming up. And again, if you have missed any of it, you can follow it all. On our website, crackrackets.com. You need the more immediate updates. Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, YouTube. We are at Crack Rackets. You want to message me directly. I am at GreatShotPod. Pod. A shout out as always to our super producers, Max Fliegner and Daniel westoff for the f- of an editing job they do day in, day out. A shout out as well to our friends at Midwest Sports Slash Tennis Point. And Dave Limke gonna be joining us later in the week to explain everything that's happening with our friends over at Midwest Sports Slash Tennis Point. But for now, go to Midwestsports.com, use that promo code CR15 to let them know we sent you there and to get the best equipment at the best prices in the tennis business with all that in mind uh and by the way for the more immediate updates i think i already said this but twitter instagram facebook youtube look out for the at crack rackets posts and again any thoughts whether it be about osaka whether it be about the day two results just anything you guys are watching forward please feel free to reach out to me at great shout pod but with that in mind for our wonderful super producers, Max Flinger and Daniel Westoff, for our wonderful friends at Midwest Sports slash Tennis Point. And from all of us here at both Crack Rackets and the Tennis Channel Podcast Network, I'm your host, Alex Gruskin. You know what we say, that's the break. And we will see you all tomorrow. Thanks, everyone.